A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. No issue has been more polarizing during President Obama's term than health care reform. Today, we're discussing his signature legislation, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, what it got right, what it got wrong, and where we go from here. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We're talking the ACA today, and we're excited. Before we get started, we wanted to put in a little plug for you guys to give us a call. We really want to hear your voices and play your little messages on air. So call us at 859-568-2330, 859-568-2330. Give us your feedback on the show or a question you want answered or just um, what you think about the news or what's going on in politics. It doesn't matter. So before we get stu- get started on the pearls and Obamacare, we're going to hear a word from our sponsor. All right, so we're back with the pearls, and we're going to start with Detroit. There was a sick out. Is that right, Beth? Yes, so students were out of school for two days uh, last week. 97 Detroit public schools shut down, something like 46,000 students not in school because teachers started calling in sick after the district announced that it would become insolvent as of June 30th. And about two-thirds of the teachers in Detroit opt to have their pay spread out over the entire year instead of receiving it all during the school year and not making any money during the summer. So the district, by saying it would be insolvent as of June 30th, was essentially saying, we're not going to pay you for time that you've already worked. Oh, no. And this isn't the first issue that Detroit teachers have uh, been up against this year. The the schools in Detroit, many of them are absolutely dilapidated. There have been reports of rats, of busted ceiling tiles, mold in the schools. Students have been wearing coats in the winter because it's been so cold. I mean, it's a real mess. Um, the, the Detroit emergency manager, uh, Darnell Early, resigned over his role in the Flint water crisis. So same emergency manager who handled part of the Flint issue was sent to Detroit then to deal with the public school system. Oh, good. I'm just thinking that, like, maybe he hasn't found his calling. I'm feeling a real you're doing a great job here, Brownie moment. So right now, 41 cents of every dollar that the district receives in Detroit is going to debt service instead of to actively paying for education. And listen, I'm all about fiscal responsibility, but but this isn't this isn't working. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there is a new emergency manager now over the school system, and uh, this is a former bankruptcy judge, Stephen Rhodes. Fun fact, I argued an appellate motion before Judge Rhodes um, when he was sitting as part of the Sixth Circuit bankruptcy appellate panel. So I'm somewhat familiar with him. I can tell you that he asked me very fantastic questions during the hearing and ruled exactly as I thought he would. So um, I have a little bit of confidence in him. I do think that, you know, it's it's interesting just to kind of step back and think about a bankruptcy judge in the emergency manager role and what that tells you about what Rick Snyder is thinking, right? Yeah. That that this is an insolvency situation. He needs a, a fiscal turnaround. And I think that's problematic in any form of government, but it's particularly problematic when the issue is education. That's no criticism of Judge Rhodes, who, as I mentioned, I do think a lot of, but this is a bigger situation than a fiscal turnaround. Anyway, Judge Rhodes has guaranteed payment of those teachers, so they're back in the classroom. The Michigan State Senate has passed a $715 million education reform package that has to go to the House next and ultimately be signed into law by Rick Snyder. And and who knows what will happen. But I think that there's just it just pains me to think about kids not being in school, especially in Detroit. I mean, you know, school is where a lot of kids eat and are kept safe and. And in addition to learning and in addition to the problems that it creates for parents and these poor teachers who don't know if they're going to get paid or not. I mean, there's just we got to do better than this. Well, it reminds me of what, you know, ever since you said that a few episodes about our number one responsibility is not fiscal responsibility, like the government's only job is not to save money. Basically, it's not even its primary job. It's like we've forgotten that so often. It's like we forget that. It runs on tax dollars, and should it manage tax dollars responsibly? Absolutely. But the idea that it's just collecting money and spending it as thriftily as possible, and that's the only thing it should be accountable for, is how you get into situations like this, and we lose sight of, no, what are we really trying to do here? It's like we talked about um, the guy that runs the conservative think tank who wrote the conservative heart. Like, what, what are we doing here? What's our purpose? And clearly, particularly in... It's almost like the harder it is to pay attention to that purpose in a situation like Detroit and when you have real fiscal problems is is when it's the most important, which probably shouldn't surprise anybody. Well, I think I've gotten some criticism from listeners for being complimentary of business leaders coming into the public sector. Listen, businesses can't run this way either. A business that decides that debt service is its only priority and that every dollar is a good dollar and that all we have to do is focus on those dollars right now, that business is doomed for failure too. Yeah. You know, you you have to be willing to spend money to improve your situation, whether you're a, a public or a private entity. And we've talked a number of times on the show about how education is the key to improving the circumstances of people's lives and improving the the fiscal circumstances of our jurisdictions. So I, you know, I just, I hope that Detroit can figure this out. I hope that Michigan as a state can figure out how it's operating, how it's using these emergency managers, you know, what their scope of authority is and the mechanisms for accountability, because this is just such an unfortunate problem. So Hillary's been talking about some issues very important to Kentuckians recently. It's got her in a little bit of hot water. I thought it was brave of her to go to West Virginia. I'll say that for her. I thought that it was very brave after her comments. In in one of the debates, I think it was a CNN debate. I mean, there have been, what, 600 debates? approximately. And and about 95 town halls or something. So hard to recall. But I think it was a CNN debate where Hillary Clinton made a comment like, we're going to put the coal companies out of business. And she said it with kind of a lot of pride. And immediately after that, I know Joe Manchin in West Virginia uh, started hearing from his constituents about it. And I even saw where people told Manchin that Hillary Clinton was not welcome in West Virginia. She went anyway. And she met with a group of people and received a question from a former coal company employee, Bo Copley. And let's just play the audio here so that you can hear her response. Know how you can say you're going to put a lot of coal miners out of out of jobs, and then come in here and tell us how you're going to be our friend? Because those people out there, 
don't see you as a friend. I know that, Bo. And, you know, I'm, I don't know how to explain it other than what I said was totally out of context from what I meant because I have been talking about helping coal country for a very long time. And I did put out a plan last summer. And it was a misstatement because what I was saying is that the way things are going now, we will continue to lose jobs. That's what I meant to say, and I think that that seems to be supported by the facts. I didn't mean that we were going to do it. What I said was that is going to happen unless we take action to try to help and prevent it. So, Sarah, I wondered, I, you know, obviously you're a, a strong Hillary Clinton supporter. I wondered what you thought of her response, what you think about this issue, and whether you think there's any possibility of her turning this around in West Virginia and Kentucky, where coal is still an enormous part of the economy. Well, it's so interesting that you brought up this exchange because I actually talked about this with a friend on Friday night whose um, husband works for a barge company. Barges carry a lot of coal, and she was like... She said she was going to close down the coal industry, and I can never vote for her. And, you know, so at first I looked up and I said, I don't think that's exactly what she said, which it wasn't. You know, she said, I'm going to close down a lot of them, which I'm not saying that's better or worse, but it is different than saying I'm going to shut down the industry, which would be impossible anyway. And, you know, my point to her was, first of all, sort of Celis Wilder's point, like we all we all know what's, what's shutting down coal, which is natural gas. Like It's just capitalism at its best. The market is not great. And I really liked his point about, like, the government's job is to protect all, you know, the coal miners have unions that protect them. And we need th- we need organizations in the government that protect us so we don't with- end up with, like, a Flint water situation. And also, I just have a lot of problem with voting for or against a candidate based solely on your personal interest. I know that sounds crazy, and it's not that I don't think that your economic, obviously your economic interests are massively important and should affect who you vote for, but the idea that you couldn't see your economic interest in the bigger picture and like sort of take that into account is unfortunate to me because I think there's always a bigger picture. You know, I don't like paying taxes, but I would pay more, I pay, I would happily pay more taxes if it meant that other people in our society would be helped out. I think she is going to, she get, you know, my friend was like, she's just doing what she always does when she heard this, the response to the coal miner, which is pivoting and making space for herself. But I'm like, yeah, that's what she does. Cause that's her job. You know, her job is to, you know, she got, you picked one sentence out of, you know, an entire couple paragraphs, probably worth of a speech. And it's not like you went back and looked at every single vote she ever took on coal, every position she's ever taken on coal. You know, it's a complicated issue. So to pick apart one person sentence seems unfair to me. But I'm probably not objective when it comes to her. I'm definitely not objective when it comes to her, actually. Well, I don't think that anyone is totally mischaracterizing her on at least the way she presented in that debate. Yeah, when she was up against Bernie. I mean, what do you want her to do? I want her to be honest wherever she is, right? I just want her to be honest. I mean, I don't know how she feels about this. Um, I think she seemed honest during the CNN debate. I think she seemed sincere talking to this coal miner. I have no idea where she is on this, really. I don't think it's ever as simple for her as to just be honest because she will get, and I don't want to imply that she wasn't being honest, but you know, if she was just trying to explain the nuance of her position in coal, he would have gone after her and people would have, you know, accused her of flip-flopping no matter what I don't I just don't think she can win with stuff like this with complicated nuanced positions which I think that she understands obviously understands and just doesn't want to but you know she can't she can't sit down with my friend and engage with a 30-minute nuanced conversation about how she really feels about it but that's what it would take to really I think convince people that she's being authentic and that's just not a reality I think if she had given an answer like Celis Wilder gave during a debate it would have been one of the best moments of her campaign I really do I mean, I know it's hard and I know she's always in this defensive posture, but I think that's difficult. And what drove me crazy about I, I thought a lot of this exchange was nice. And again, I give her props for going to West Virginia and trying to earn those votes, given how hostile that territory is to her. I think that was bold and I appreciate it. I appreciate when people don't write off states like West Virginia and Kentucky. So, you know, this isn't just a, a slam on her. 
But I hate the word misstatement and I wish she would stop using it. You know, if I worked for her, I would say, can we sit down and talk about a different way to talk in situations like this? Because misstatement, it's just like she has this little switch where she turns so lawyerly and kind of tries to abdicate any responsibility. I mean, I would if if I were her, I would try in that situation to say, you know, I said that. And as I'm sitting here with you, I can understand how that feels. Here's what motivates me when I say things like that. Can you understand where I'm coming from? Now, let me understand where you're coming from. The misstatement sounds like, oh, this is somebody else's fault. It always is in that defensive posture, which frustrates me. I just think, I think her defensive posture is well-earned. That's just how I feel about her. I mean, Donald Trump is bringing up her stuff from 15 years ago. Nasty, nasty stuff about her marriage. Like, who can't blame her for being in a defensive posture after what all she's gone through? Like, I just think the idea that, you know, she's going to, after decades in the political eye and one of the most, you know, visible feminists in the country and someone whose personal life has been the purview of in the entire public. I just think that after all, you know, with Hillary Clinton's history, the idea that she's going to, you know, pull out her Brene Brown is probably, it's just not realistic and I can't blame her. And I don't think we should ask her to be somebody she's not. You know, I, I think that she's not like that. She's a private person, I think, at the end of the day about certain things. I think she's she likes leading, but she hates campaigning, and it comes through. And I just think we got—I mean, I'm just at the point now where I'm like, just let her be her. Like that's who she is. It—I don't think it means that she's dishonest. I think it means that she's gone through a lot and she has a defensive posture when she's campaigning. And I just can't blame her for it. I don't think she's trying to hide anything. I think she's trying to protect herself, and I think that is well deserved. I think it's just a—it's a—it's a long, a long road she's walked and. Truthfully, none of us really understand what it must be like to be public on that level. And so, at least, you know, I certainly don't. And so, I, I don't know. I just, I get really defensive of her because I just really think that she's been through so much and none of us, we, it's it was so easy to say like, well, this is what she should say. But we just don't know, you know? I agree with all of that and would certainly say those things if she were my friend or a relative of mine. The hard thing is that everything you just said, true as it is, and it is true, requires the voting public to give her every benefit of the doubt. And that's hard even for people who are open to her but not currently supporters of her. It's impossible for people who are not open to her, you know. So it's just it's – you're not wrong. I just don't know how persuasive that is beyond the people who are who share that view. I'm consistent on the benefit of the doubt to politicians, man. I just they don't get it enough. I don't think it's fair. Saying says someone running for office. Let's talk about another down ballot race. Um, Mark Kirk, Illinois senator, is being challenged by Representative Tammy Duckworth in a race that is the kind of race that makes me, again, wish that you could just elect both people. Like, would our process be better if we had four senators from every state, two Democrats, two Republicans? Because, (laughs) you know, Mark Kirk is an imperfect human. So I'll start with that. He has had some terrible gaffes, but he is more moderate than most of his colleagues. He has an F grade from the NRA. He has been supportive of environmental legislation. He is a social centrist. He's complimented Bernie Sanders all over the place. He's he's not a bad guy. And I think Tammy Duckworth is an extremely inspiring figure. She's a veteran. She's been an excellent representative. So these are two really good people running against each other in a very blue state. Um, The Republican National Party is not giving Kirk much help because Illinois is such a blue state and they've sort of calculated that Tammy Duckworth is a great candidate and she'll be made greater by Hillary Clinton at the top of the ticket. Um, But I I hate to see Mark Kirk just kind of eradicated from the national scene because I, I do appreciate his moderate voice. Yeah, that's great. It's it reminds me of the sort of situation we have currently in Kentucky's Democratic primary, Democratic primary for the Senate seat running against Rand Paul. There's just a couple, Sellis is really great. Um, I'm learning more about the candidate named Ron Leach. And I, and I like Jim Gray and it's like, where were all you people? It just seems like, how, why does it always feel like we're in these races and you're like, why do I have six options? But like two years ago, I felt like I had zero options. It's like, it's like famine or feast around or here. Or even if you just look at the ballot, it's like six options for this seat. And zero yeah. options that are attractive for the here. other one. Yeah, that's, yes, yes, totally. 
Okay, well, we'll take a second, as we always do, to compliment someone from the other side. So I will start. Um, I wanted to compliment Nina Turner today. She is a former Ohio legislator and is now a a Sanders surrogate. And I just like her. I just like her on television. I think she's refreshingly honest. I think she's relatable. She is so vulnerable. She's kind of all of the things that we were just talking about that Hillary Clinton isn't in terms of her presentation. And I think it's refreshing. And I think she's someone that we will hear a lot more from. And, you know, I just I just enjoy seeing her on my TV. I respect her a lot for what she's doing. Um, I'm not going to pick one. I'm just going to give a shout out to any Republican. And I think there's been several. Uh, Lindsey Graham, Jeb Bush, but the other Bushes, all the, all the Bushes, who basically after Donald Trump became when Kasich and Cruz dropped out a when Trump became the presumptive nominee over the last few weeks, I just feel like there's been a lot from the, from the, the Bush echelons down to lower um, Congress people who are just saying, no, I'm no, I'm not going to be a part of this. I will not support him. Um, Apparently there was even talk that the strategist for the Republican senatorial committee was just basically like, you don't you don't have to you don't have to embrace him. So I don't I think that is very courageous. And so any Republican who's just drawing a line in the sand right now and saying, Nope, I'm giving mad props to. Yeah, I think there might be some tickets in Cleveland available. It sounds like a lot of people are skipping the conventions. It's gonna be interesting. I think we went from they're gonna riot to it's gonna be nobody's gonna be there. It's gonna be sort of an echo chamber. We're going to move on now in the suit to discussing the Affordable Care Act, and we are going to try to keep this episode under 10,000 hours. I did a primer on the Affordable Care Act because it is a giant piece of legislation that does a ton of things, and I think uh, not many people know what it says. So if you're listening and you don't know anything about the Affordable Care Act, that provides a very brief overview in about 18 minutes. You might want to check it out. Before we start talking about what we like and don't like... My request is, can we just agree out of the gate that we all want quality health care for people and we don't want people to go bankrupt because of their health care? Absolutely. And we also wanted to sort of do our own personal disclosure. So um, I just wanted to say, just just to lay it out there, um, my family and my husband works at a law firm, but he is a partner, so it's sort of like, I mean, he's not an employee in the traditional sense. So we go on the um, healthcare marketplace to get our healthcare. It is incredibly expensive to have healthcare, health insurance for my husband, um, myself, and our three children. I think we're creeping up. I think it's a, it's more than our mortgage at this point. So it's something I care passionately about. I, I actually have had a couple positive interactions with the ACA when I, when we first decided to have our second child. Used to when you would get health insurance, they'd say you can't. They would like you couldn't have a baby the first year. Do you remember this rule? No, that's crazy. Yeah, they had like a rule um, where you could not have a baby for the first year after you got on the insurance, which is insane when you think about that. And so I, we had switched and I, you know, I'm a planner. I knew when I was gonna have this baby and Nicholas was like, well, you'll have to wait a year because we just switched insurance. And I'm like, what? And so I called the insurance company and they were like, no, you do have to wait a year. But when were you planning on getting pregnant? And I was like, oh, 2011. Oh, they were like, well, good for you. After the ACA doesn't, we can't make that rule anymore. So you can have your kid whenever you want. So points to Obamacare for that. (laughs) And we've actually gotten some of the like rebate where you don't, if your insurance company doesn't spend basically enough of your deductible or whatever, your your premiums, they send it back to you if it's like they can't spend it all on marketing anymore, basically. So we've gotten a couple of those. We've been, you know, mostly healthy and haven't had huge interactions with um, the health healthcare industry generally. But I have overall positive interactions with the ACA, but incredibly high cost of health insurance that I would like to reduce. The other thing I wanted to just maybe agree on before we start talking, and I try never to call this law Obamacare just because I feel like it is the most polarizing piece of legislation of our time, as we said at the beginning of the show. And I think thinking about it as Obamacare, it's like everyone has this knee-jerk reaction. I love it or it's terrible socialism that's killing our country based on how you feel about the president. There's so much here 
that there has to be some good in it and there has to be some problems in it, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I just think we've totally lost our nuance about this legislation because we've just thought of it as Obamacare and I like President Obama or I don't like President Obama. And th- there are 2,700 pages of law here to, to get your arms around. So if you can't pick out a few pros and a few cons, I feel like you're not doing justice to the topic. Right. You're definitely not being nuanced, that's for sure. So why don't we start with the pros? You want me to start, Sarah? Sure. I probably have more pros than people would expect from a Republican. I don't have any issue with the marketplaces. I feel like that is infrastructure. It's modern infrastructure, you know? I think of the internet in the same way that I think of roads and bridges. I don't know that the federal government is the best entity to build it, but but I can get behind the idea of let's put all these plans out there. Let's create some transparency about the pricing of these plans. Let's make it where a, a regular person can sort of understand what's going on. I like that there is some focus on healthcare itself. I'll talk more about this in a second, but I, I'm always supportive of our tax dollars going to research disease prevention and cure. I think that's important. I like that there's some research going on about error prevention in the medical field. Even though I don't like that it's all embedded in this giant law, there are some things in it that I think are good. I think the transparency aspect for restaurants is good. Um, I think the focus on generic prescription drugs is good. There are a lot of things, actually, that I think are done pretty well in the Affordable Care Act. Well, I think that there's some universally popular aspects of the law. I think the no, not being able to deny people for pre-existing conditions is fantastic. That's that's actually another um, personal, pretty funny story. When Nicholas, before ACA, Nicholas applied for insurance when we first moved to Paducah, and I was still on my, um, I think I was still on Cobra maybe, and they denied him because I was pregnant. <laughs> I wasn't even applying for the insurance. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to deny you because your wife is pregnant. And Nicholas was like, she's not applying. And they were basically like, oh, yeah, it's a new thing we're trying out. So, you know, the the being able to eliminate these incredibly insane stories you hear you know, I had a friend denied in her 30s for, for an eating disorder she had when she was 15, um, stuff like that. I think that's an incredibly positive aspect of the law. I personally like the, I know it's it's sparked a lot of lawsuits, but I do think that birth, care, birth control should be covered. And I do think that all obstetrics and gynecological visits should be covered and that women should not be treated differently under their insurance policies. And the, um, I know it's been helpful for a lot of families for kids to be able to stay on their insurance, their their parents' insurance for much longer, especially considering the state of our economy over the past few years. So I think all those aspects are positive. And I know that a lot of the sort of the going digital and getting healthcare providers off paper records was part of another bigger law. But I think um, I think the ACA did a lot to sort of push that further, even further along. I think that's really great. I had actually had a, a torts professor whose focus in law school was um, medical errors, and it's really scary. And most probably why I have an incredibly hands-off approach to medical care because I just have read way too much about what happened. You just don't, you just don't want to go there, y'all. It's not because they're trying to screw up. It's just because humans are humans and it's so many medical errors and scary um, bacteria. And yeah, just don't go to the hospital if you can help it. But so I think that's really great. And my biggest uh, source of support for the ACA is basically something had to happen. The situation was, was, and I'm not saying it's fixed, but it was reaching crisis levels and people needed health insurance and people were, it, it, I just think that the situation had reached such epically bad proportions. Something had to happen. And is this the most beautiful law? Was this just built from pristine policy? No, of course not, because it's sausage and it came out of a sausage factory known as Congress. But I think... Anything was better than what we had, and I think so often we have to sort of just take the initial step, and we're not really going to know the effects and what works and what doesn't work until they start working, and then we will have to shift and adjust accordingly. I know that that's probably what's going to be happening coming up with the, the Cadillac tax on health on the, the big fancy policies that they're, they're continuing to want to kick down the road. So I think that you got to start somewhere, and this was a good place to start. So before we move on to what the ACA gets wrong, we'll take here another quick message from our sponsor. So because all of our 
pictures live on our phones now. I'm constantly thinking like, oh, I wish I had that framed or this picture is the perfect picture of my best friend's daughter and I really want to send her to this picture. So I found the most amazing company I've talked about before on Pantsuit Politics. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. It's called Pictly, which is a photo app that you can download in a cinch. You pick a picture. You can pick it right from your Instagram feed. You can pick a frame, and they send the picture all wrapped and with a card to anyone you want. And we're talking super affordable. And the, even the really cool part is before they send you the, the gift to your loved one or friend, they send you a picture of like what it looks like. And you've checked it out, Beth. What do you think? Yeah, I really love that there's such a variety of frames and like a bunch of different sizes, a bunch of different price points, and even square frames. Because let's be honest, like without the Instagram filters, I'm not much of an iPhone photographer. So this is perfect for me. So check out Pictly pictly.com or you can just use the promo code pantsuitpolitics for 10% off at pictly check it out guys well sarah you were just talking about how we're going to have to continue to adjust to avoid crisis mode in in healthcare i think that is the biggest problem that i have with the affordable care act i'm not sure that it goes after the root cause of that crisis which is the cost of healthcare I think the Affordable Care Act is largely about insurance, and I feel like the control of insurance over our health care and the degree to which insurance has removed us from the price of health care, the necessity of health care, 
I think insurance has become a substitute for informed consent on the part of patients in a lot of circumstances. And so I wish that the Affordable Care Act had spent less time worrying about insurance and much less time on worrying about insurance provided by employers and put more focus on just actually how much all this costs and how we often don't know that. Like, I love the requirement that restaurants list their nutritional facts on menus, right? Of Restaurants of a certain size have to disclose all that nutritional information now. But I thought to myself, interesting that that is a focus more than my doctor doesn't have to give me a written list of what the services he's proposing to perform mm-hmm. are going to cost and what my alternatives to those services might be. I think healthcare providers are by and large noble people doing incredibly difficult work, facing their own challenges. I am not a person who thinks doctors make too much money. I mean, what those people go through to get trained to do what they do every day, I I understand that they are as challenged by the current healthcare system as anyone else. So no slam on doctors. But I just think systemically we need patients to be able to make decisions that they can't make today. The issue for me with our healthcare system isn't only how much it costs, but it's what we're getting. And unfortunately, in this country, we think more healthcare is better healthcare, and it's not. Over and over, you see studies that say we spend more and we don't get better outcomes. So it would be one thing if we were trying, which people feel like, I feel like that was the so much of the defensiveness with Obamacare was you're taking away my great health care and now I'm going to have to wait in line like they do in Canada. There's only one problem with that. You don't have great health care. Lots of tests and lots of surgeries does not mean that you have great health care. And until we can really tackle that as a society and involve the healthcare industry in that and say, look, we have to rethink this. We have to rethink what, like what we were saying before, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of health care? You know, I think one of the best, two, two really great ways to see this is when someone is born and when someone dies. When a baby is born, it's treated like so often sort of, it's like you're ill, but I'm not ill, I'm pregnant. And the way that we sort of codify and formulize birth has not led to better outcomes. And so I think you see that there. And I think you also see that with end-of-life care. You have a lot of money being spent. I never will forget there's a really fantastic book that we'll put in the show notes. Um, There's actually two articles. I'm sort of Atul Gawande. He's a health – he's a vascular surgeon. He writes a lot about health care, and I'm a total disciple of his. And he wrote a really great New Yorker article about birth, and then he wrote a New Yorker article about end-of-life care, but and then wrote a book called Being Mortal that I'm – just love. It's a wonderful book. Everyone should read it. And he talked about during fatal illnesses, fatal cancers, or um, end-of-life care, he'll have patients basically that say, will say, you know, do whatever you can. And the problem is he can always do something. Will it help the person? Will it improve their quality of life? Um, Maybe not, but he can always do something. And so in a society where we think doing something is good health care, then you get incredibly high cost with not a really great return on your money. And I agree that I don't think the ACA does a really great job of dealing with that. I think it tries and it does the best it best it can. But I think we have to have a, a, a national conversation. And it has to be a very honest conversation with doctors in particular and While some of my closest friends are doctors, and I think it is a noble profession, there is an attitude that um, I feel like I run into sometimes or that I see in which there, there is a belief that doctors are entitled to a certain amount. I mean, when I was growing up in Paducah in the 90s, you had doctors making millions of dollars a year. That is not the reality anymore. But I feel like there is sort of an expectation that they need to be making millions of dollars a year. And look, med school is hard, and I've never been to med school. I'm not even going to, like, be dismissive about how hard it is. It's an incredibly difficult task. But the purpose of healthcare is not to make people money. The purpose of healthcare is to get us good outcomes and to save lives and keep us healthy. And I just think it's gotten so skewed between pharmaceutical companies and big hospitals who, in our, you know, in theory are nonprofits, but are building and expanding and building and expanding and paying lots of people to top lots of money. And as noble as the, the purpose of the healthcare industry is, there is a lot of money on the table. And when there's a lot of money on the table, 
I think we lose track of what we're really trying to do, which is improve quality of care. And I think that's gotten lost. And I'm not sure ACA does a great job of handling that. Like you said, I think we've got people insured, but people feel so powerless. There's not enough skin in the game to really be a good consumer. I think you're right. I think it hasn't gone far enough, but I think part of that, I'm not sure a law could do. I think it's a societal shift that's going to have to happen. Well, I totally agree with you that a law can't accomplish everything. What I think the law could do is push for additional transparency. All of the transparency that's being required of insurance companies now to me is misplaced. I think that's important and I don't have any problem with it. But the bigger focus, I think to get people to start asking those questions, they need to get more information from their healthcare mm-hmm. providers. Another mm-hmm. thing that I think the ACA could have done since it was going into insurance so much and what we pay for and what we don't pay for, or even on the taxing side, because ultimately a lot of the Affordable Care Act is just a big law about taxes, right? So right. so I would like to see a recognition of services that keep people healthy as services that are compensable or deductible. For example, I think massage therapy is incredibly beneficial. The best care I've received in my life has come from a massage therapist. Now that's a that's expensive. It's regular care that I get all the time. I have fibromyalgia. When I first started seeing a doctor about these issues, I said to him, you know, I don't want to take a pill every day for the rest of my life. I'm 30 years old. So tell me what I need to eat. Tell me how I need to move. But I don't don't prescribe something for me. And he looked at me and he said, so that's the opposite of the conversation that I have every day (laughs) because everyone I talk to says, don't talk to me about diet and exercise. Give me a pill. And he was like, so honestly, I'm having trouble figuring out what to say to you right now. (laughs) And so I, I think we need to flip some of those things. But I have had the privilege of being able to pay for a chiropractor when my baby was breached, you know, a massage therapist throughout my chronic pain. Those things have benefited me so much. And what if I couldn't afford them, which is the position of so many people. And I think that's, I think that is driving up healthcare costs because as expensive as a massage is once a month, think about what if I were on drugs for the rest of my adult life? So I I don't know. I think we get things backwards. I totally agree with you about pregnancy and birth. I almost had to like fight people from giving me things at the hospital that I did not need when I had my babies. At one point, I said to a nurse, just just bring me in against medical advice form. I'll sign it, but I'm not doing what you're talking to me about doing. And then she said, well, do you understand that your insurance company won't pay for things after this if you sign this form? Not true. And I said, I'm a lawyer. Bring me the form. (laughs) And so she did. You know, and it was just, I just thought, again, what if I couldn't advocate for myself in a situation like that? I signed all manner of against medical advice when I had Felix in the hospital after two home births. And don't believe that my husband, who is incredibly thrifty, was making sure that our insurance would still cover it. I think we need more transparency to help us as patients make good decisions and advocate for ourselves. And I think that's the first step toward that conversation that you're talking about, about whether we need more care as good care. And I agree with you. I don't think more care always does equal good care. Well, and you know what else, what we what you sort of touched on quickly, but I think the ACA has really exposed the problem with employment-based insurance because of some of the concerns with reproductive freedom in which you have your employer making the your birth control decisions, basically. And because I'm just not sure it's a sustainable, well-functioning way to insure people. And I think that's what, as ACA moves on, we're sort of finding that. Like, we're all sort of like, why is this? It's in particular because as our economy changes and the way people work changes, and you're talking about people changing careers, you know, 30 jobs, 20, 20 times, and, you know, all these statistics you read. So the idea that it's like the 50s and 60s and you got your insurance, although they, I mean, they didn't do employment insurance. The the, the, story, the healthcare stories my grandmother tells me about the 50s and 60s are just mind-blowing. Like, I went to the hospital and I had a baby and I paid $50 and I went home. It's insane. So, I mean, I, I one of the things the ACA... I'm not, I, I wouldn't say it's gotten it wrong. I just think it's exposed a flaw in our system, which is employment-based insurance. I don't think employment-based insurance is long for this world. I don't think it'll last another 10, 20 years. I think we'll shift away from that. Maybe the thought is it's a step forward, right? You can't completely turn the system on its head. So this is a turn in that direction. I could buy that. But I think the ship ought to keep steering in that direction for exactly the reasons you said. You need coverage that's more consistent over the life of your career than you're going to get if you're changing employer to employer, employer, right? 
Um, I also think that the data that comes to employers, especially large employers, about employee claims is fraught with bad incentives for employers, with uh, information security issues for employers and employees. There are just a lot of reasons that your health information shouldn't be flowing around your employer. And employers go to great lengths to screen off decision makers from getting that information, to get information without any names attached to it. I mean, now you're adding process on process on process to protect yourself from all these things when what would be a better solution, I think, is for insurance just to be on the open market and for employers to get out of it altogether. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I agree. I think that we've sort of covered in a roundabout way, some of the things we think should change moving forward. Greater pricing transparency, I definitely agree with. You know, I've, again, because I am married to what I will lovingly say is the thriftiest man alive. I mean, Nicholas and I have done, which I, I, and because we're both lawyers and because I think of my home birth experience, we feel very comfortable advocating for ourselves. I mean, there was a time when a doctor was recommending to me to go get a, um, the screening for your gallbladder. 
I have no doubt if I'd gone and gotten the screening, but my husband was like, that's really expensive. Let's see if we can, how much it is at these different places. Let's call around and see how much they charge because that took a while to figure it out. And by the time I figured it out, the issue that I was going from my gallbladder, I realized it was actually just these ibuprofens that I were taking. Long story. Anyway, so because we were looking for more pricing transparency, which was hard to get, I ended up not getting it, not needing it. I, I have... I really believe truly that if I had taken a more traditional path that the doctor said, okay, go to the hospital tomorrow, get this screening, they would have found something with my gallbladder and I would have had surgery to have my gallbladder removed. Like I'm sort of, I'm pretty sure that's what would have happened. But because I was searching out this pricing and trying to find this a different path, I ended up figuring out what it was and not having the surgery and everything was fine. So I think that if you could give people more transparency and empower them to make these decisions, that would be a huge step forward in addressing the the issue of whether or not we're getting more health care or better health care. I also think it would be good moving forward to study different types of health insurance or different types of funding. I think there's a difference between your sort of wellness and maintenance care, you know, your preventive visits, things like I was talking about where, I, you know, disease management through alternative means perhaps and, and perhaps not, right? Just regular, if you take if you take blood pressure medication every day, just regular care versus catastrophic care. I think that we have mm-hmm. intermingled the two too much in most of our current forms of insurance. And again, I do think insurance has become this vehicle for all of these problems when it's not really. I mean, maybe most of our care should be out of pocket, right? And insurance is more our hedging of catastrophic risk. Yeah, I really think so. I think that would be a great way to That's do it. That's part of what I like about health savings accounts, because you're putting money aside pre-tax, so there's some advantage to you, and then you can spend that money when you need it on expenses. I think that model should be studied more, though, because I think there's some good things about Um, encouraging people to save money for their routine medical expenses. And then maybe we look at insurance more as catastrophic, like we do for our cars, right? The idea of like, I had a fender bender, I'm not going to turn this one in because I don't want my rates to increase. I I think that that might be a path to go down. It obviously requires a lot more study. But I think we have to understand that insurance is about financial risk. And we've turned it into financial risk, plus like these moral imperatives Plus, like, the decision maker for us so we don't have to think about it. Our only analysis is, does my insurance cover this or not? There's just a lot of work to be done. And I do think that some of our great think tanks need to be on this. I think you're right that we need to have a conversation among providers. And some of these conversations are happening. I mean, I think that is a good thing about the Affordable Care Act. If you can view it as a starting place instead of the end of times. Which it hasn't been. Let's all acknowledge that, too, please. It hasn't been. Now, it has caused dramatic upheaval um, in the insurance industry in ways that I don't know actually benefit many patients. There are more people insured. Long term, um, I'm sure some lives have been saved and hooray for that. I don't know where we go. There are definitely people who've lost their insurance through the Affordable Care Act, too. So it's a mixed bag, which it's going to be. And I guess that's the last thing I thought we should talk about, Sarah. And one of our listeners, Lou, encouraged us to talk about this, too. Should, is this the way to legislate? You talked about it as sausage. I, I think this is the sausage-est sausage of all time because <laughs> it is almost like it was so hard to get done. And everybody sort of piled on, like, let's try to do everything at once. It's it's such an ambitious law, and I think that's its Achilles heels. And I think that's going to make it really, really difficult to do anything with because you've just got layers and layers and layers. And now you have a law with multiple layers and, like, tens of thousands of pages of administrative regulations layered on top of that. How do you keep coming back to what problem am I trying to solve and what's the best way for me to solve that problem when you've created such a mess? It it makes me feel like our Congress really needs to have a talk with itself about how it passes laws and how it examines laws that have already been passed. I I feel like I understand the instinct, which was we we have a moment and let's do it. And there's a really great article on Vox that's basically says, like it, you know, love it or hate it. It's part of the reason Obama is one of the most consequential presidents in recent history. It was a huge momentous thing. And we're sort of it was so the arguments were so intense at the time. I'll never forget the, the town halls where people were like spitting on legislators. It was so shocking. But I mean, we got through it. Like I said, 
like it or love it, I think we can all agree, like, this, the country is still standing. We don't have death panels. You know, it's everything's okay. Side note, death panels, although a terrible name, were not a bad idea. That's in that Atul Gawande stuff, too. But I think you're right as far as procedurally. But I'm not sure there was another way to do it. I'm not sure that he got more agreement. That's how it became so sausagey, right? He really did get more people, more players to the table than I think it seemed like at the time. And that's how you ended up with all these compromises in a thousand pages of bill. Well, and part of the reason it was so heated, and we haven't spent any time on this, is the individual mandate, right? The idea that we are requiring people to have health insurance. I have a big problem with that. I do think that it's helpful to recall that that just means that you pay a penalty if you don't have it. It doesn't mean you're going to jail or something. You know, we say against the law, people uh, bring a whole kind of dramatic context to that. And and it is just a penalty. I still think it's wrong and I don't like it. I think the Supreme Court rightly upheld it as constitutional, but I don't think it's wise as a matter of policy. Um, but do you feel that way about auto insurance? Yeah, I do. That's a personal opinion. And I get that lots of people are going to disagree with it. I don't like the government dictating how people spend their money. So I, I just don't like it, but I don't think that we need to suddenly take that to, and now we are in a Marxist country. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think that dialing back the drama on everything would be pretty helpful. Um, I feel definitely that is a good point to end our discussion on the Affordable Care Act. I can't think of a better, uh, a better summary than dialing back the drama would be helpful. So we covered, what, maybe one... 1,000th of the things that we could say about the Affordable Care Act. But we did it in under 10,000 hours. Which is which was partially our goal. So I know yeah. that we're going to get lots of feedback. We've already gotten lots of feedback. We would love to continue this conversation with you. We can't possibly do it all in one podcast, but happy to have individual emails back and forth. We get some of the most thoughtful messages from people. So we're looking forward mm-hmm. to those continuing. So next up in the heels, we're recording this on Mother's Day. So we're going to give a little recap on each of our Mother's Days. Sarah, did you have a nice Mother's Day weekend? Well, I got woken up at 4.30 and then 5 o'clock and then 5.30 and then 6 o'clock and then 6.30. So it wasn't a strong start necessarily to my day, (laughs) but I got some very sweet, um, handmade gifts for my children. And I, we've been doing this for several years. I read about this idea in real simple. So I have like a little leather bound book with just filled with blank pages that I bought at like books a million. And then every year Nicholas and the boys like, like do their little card or whatever in the book. So everything's like all in one place and I can flip through and see past mother's day, which is really nice. Um, I'm so glad we do it. And this year, Nick uh, Griffin made me a word a word search, which was very cool. Went to church and hung out with my mom and my grandmother, and got to go on a bike ride and read my book in my hammock. So yeah, I had a good Mother's Day after the the, the rough start. Well, this was uh, an unusual Mother's Day for me because Chad has been out of town all week. He left on Tuesday and didn't get back until about lunchtime today. So I am exhausted from <laughs> being on my own all week with our with our girls. But it was nice. My parents came to visit, which was enormously helpful to me. And it was fun to get to spend Mother's Day with my mother. We, we don't live near any of our family members. So it was really great to have my parents here. Um, Jane made a card for me that was like a little book that you could flip through. And I really loved one page of it. It was sort of where she had to fill in words on each page. You know, mom is great because whatever. And my favorite page, I posted this on Twitter. She, it said, my mom has the best and she wrote ideas in the blank. And it it was like, she gets me. (laughs) There was no compliment that I would have loved more than her saying that I have the best ideas. So that was really fun. But we had lunch with everybody. And then Chad, um, our anniversary is next week as well. So we have kind of a lot to celebrate in the month of May. So for kind of one gift to wrap up all those celebrations, he got me an Amazon Echo. Oh, I love my Echo. I don't know how I lived before Alexa. I really enjoy having her in my kitchen. Yeah, so I've done all kinds of cooking this week, and it's been so nice to be able to just say, Alexa, set the timer. Alexa, turn on the music. So that's been been really fun. 
Oh yeah, we're big we're big fans of Alexa in this household. I'll link to a, a blog post I wrote about um, Alexa. We're big fans, and also my my middle son Amos filled out a, a similar thing at pre K, and he said that um, that I worked at a computer, and then I actually asked him to to clarify, and he said that I did Compast. <laughs> I think he meant podcast. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and he also said that. Panera food was my favorite food, and I tweeted it out. And Panera tweeted me and was like, "We would like to give you a, you and Amos a meal on us." Aww. I'm like, "I will let you, Panera. Thank you so much. That's so sweet. Good so, job, Panera. That was fun. That's nice. good job, Panera. Well, I hope you guys all had great Mother's Days. Thank you as always for listening. Uh, we really appreciate your iTunes ratings and reviews. Those reviews are super important to helping us move up in the iTunes ratings list so that more people can find us. So if you haven't given us a review yet please do so. We really appreciate it. Um, Always visit our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. You can contact us there. Also get old episodes and shop for our t-shirts on Friday. And they're going, there's only like three of the gray ones left. So if you want a gray pantsuit politics t-shirt, you better get on that soon. On Friday in the briefcase, we're going to talk about a number of things, including how I tend to lose my nuance about social conservatism. So that'll be a good one, I think. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. 